Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this week's episode, we learn about Oasis with Vishwa Raman, who is the privacy architect at Oasis Labs. But before we start in, I want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Trail of Bits. Trail of Bits recently published a new guide for building secure contracts with their Crytek offering. Crytek is a SaaS-based GitHub application created by Trail of Bits that continuously assures your Ethereum smart contracts are safe and functional. It reports build status on every commit and runs a suite of security analyses so you get immediate security feedback. Check out their guide, which I've added in the show notes, for tips on how to build security into your dApps from the start, as well as how to use the Trail of Bits suite of tools for automated vulnerability detection. So thank you again, Trail of Bits. And now here's our episode on Oasis. So this week, we have Vishwa Raman, who is a privacy architect at Oasis Labs with us. Welcome to the show, Vishwa. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So... I think it would be interesting for us to understand a little bit about you before we start in on this interview. What were you working on before you joined Oasis? Oh, I started off in 1995 working at Silicon Graphics. I think that is one of the things that I'm really proud of. We uh, rendered SGI paperless, which is way before we had Google, which is way before we had all of the things that we are now used to uh, in the way in which we interact with the internet. So this was one where we built a complete... Uh, you know, a PKI-based system. We had a backend uh, set of services that could process these electronic folders, as we called them. So these would be electronic forms. When people submitted any kind of a requisition, for instance, it could be for purchases or for leaves or whatever. So this would be routed through our system. And then we would figure out, based on the content of those folders, how they have to be routed through the organization. So that was mm -hmm. what we did way back in 95, using C++, STL, and in fact, back in the day, it used to be the case that uh, we would use Perl uh, for the front end. And Larry Wall, the inventor of Perl, was within hollering distance of where, where I worked. So if you had questions, you would go directly to Larry. So, <laughs> so this was way back. <laughs> so I worked at uh, SGI for a year and a half or so, and then moved to the design automation space, where I worked on formal verification techniques for a while. This was about nine years or so at Synopsys. And then subsequent to that, I decided to go back to school, uh, went to UC Santa Cruz, got my PhD in computer science, and then loved academia so much so that I decided to stay back, went to CMU as a postdoc for about three years as a researcher. And then after that, Dawn reached out and she had started this company called Insita, which was a mobile security company. And mm. so she wanted me to uh, join them, and so which is what I did. This was way back in uh, 2013. And so that this was my pre-blockchain, right? This is not this a is blockchain way project. Not at, all, okay. not at all. This is pre-blockchain. And so I worked with her there on uh, mostly using static analysis techniques to see what kind of vulnerabilities there exist in applications, Android as well as iOS. But Android was and continues to be much easier to find not just vulnerabilities, but also to analyze, right? Because it's bytecode, mm -hmm. which you can, uh, yeah. Uh, so that was what I did there. And subsequent to which I went to... Uh, a container security company. So I was in security and privacy ever since from 2013 or so. So I went to a, a microservices uh, company. This was uh, for about three and a half years, I was working on various machine learning techniques that can be used to detect anomalies. 
for detection primarily. Then Dawn started Oasis. And for me, it was just a matter of time before I joined Dawn again on her next journey, ah. yeah, <laughs> on her next adventure. So that's exactly what happened. So I joined Dawn. This was uh, 2018. So when the company was about three months old or so. I see. So that was actually a follow-up question that I had is, this: you're the first person from Oasis that we've had on the show, um, but we've heard about your project uh-huh. for quite a while. I think actually Noah spoke at a earlier uh, Zero Knowledge Summit. So I have oh, some I reference okay. through that, but I'm curious to hear, like, how did Oasis start and when did it start? So Oasis um, started in 2018, and this came out of Don Song's lab in Berkeley, because I think Don has, as you know, has been in security and privacy for the last, I think, 20 plus years. And this was a project that was incubated pretty much in Don's lab. And then I think at that point, you know, if you really think about it, what was prevalent in terms of technology or the limitations of technology for blockchain platforms was scalability mm-hmm. because you still had blockchain is, 1.0. Seems. I mean, it still is, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, that way things are, but I think things are changing for sure. I mean, we, as well as other projects, I think there are different interesting solutions for scalability. I mean, we have ours, of course, which we are hoping to use to address the problems. But uh, more importantly, I think blockchain 1.0, and then you had 2.0 at that point, which is the Ethereum. Mm-hmm. But then what we decided was not just to handle scalability, but then if you architected a system from the ground up so that you not just addressed scale, but you also addressed privacy and confidentiality, then that would make a significant difference to the whole ecosystem. And that was the genesis for Oasis. Mm -hmm. And given Dawn's background, given her expertise, I think it was a very natural thing for her to work on not just a blockchain platform, you know, which provides integrity, but also one that provides confidentiality and privacy. So that was the way Oasis started. Like, what is Oasis, actually? Because I've heard about a lot of projects and initiatives and research that's come out of Oasis, but, like, what would you call the project today? Sure. it's uh, I would call it a layer one blockchain platform. Okay. Which is pri- privacy-first layer one blockchain platform is probably the best way to describe what Oasis does. So, and if you think about it, Oasis is not just the blockchain platform, but also all of the tooling and the technologies that enable people to take advantage of the confidentiality and privacy guarantees that the platform provides. So what we have chosen to do is not just build out a blockchain platform, but also to make it easy for us to attract developers who are not just blockchain developers, but also enterprise developers. Mm. So right from the very outset, the goal was not just to enable you know, the, the sorts of transactions that you would find in, in blockchain networks that are prevalent. And even today, you find that mostly token transfers and things of that nature. But then what we really wanted to do was to enable demanding applications. For instance, applications that do machine learning training or those that can be used to do predictive analytics or, um, you know, they, they do differential privacy in, ahead of a SQL database, for instance. So things of that nature. So we didn't want to be limited, given the fact that we wanted to attract developers that are not just blockchain savvy, but also those that belong to enterprises. The goal from the very outset has been to make it as easy as possible for devs of any ilk to be able to use the platform. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, has been the overarching concern for the platform. But to answer your question, I think, yeah, that would probably be the best way to describe it. It's a privacy-first blockchain platform with tooling that makes it easy for devs. Yeah. So I, I first came in contact with Oasis probably in 2018 or maybe early 2019, and and we were... Because back then, some of it was built on Parity Ethereum, or what was Parity Ethereum back then? 
then I we talked at Zero Knowledge Summit, and it feels like, to me like it's gone through a number of pivots and a number of changes in architecture. I'm curious, like, if you just look at the project today, how is that built? Like, are you did you start building a layer one from scratch? Is it still based on Ethereum? Yeah, well, what is the actual tech stack? Interesting. Yes, I mean, it was always a layer one blockchain platform, for sure. I mean, at that point, when we started, at least we were using Parity, as you say. And uh, also for consensus, we were using the Tendermint, Tendermint open source code. But then in order to uh, you know handle the problem of scale from the very beginning, it's been that we have taken this approach where you can have any runtime that interacts with the consensus layer. There's a clean separation of concerns between consensus and the execution layers. And execution can happen through, for instance, it could be an Ethereum compatible runtime. It could be based on, it could provide a WASM runtime, right? An execution environment could be a WASM runtime that's based on parity. It doesn't matter at all. So we are completely oblivious. When it comes to the consensus layer, it's completely oblivious as to what the runtime capabilities are. And it's not the case that all runtimes might provide even confidentiality. So we are completely open to enabling different runtimes. And the runtime that we run as a part of Oasis is a confidential runtime. And we have a reference architecture and an implementation of a confidential runtime that uh, is a WASM runtime which is again parity-based, yes. And that's the thing that uh, anyone can run. I mean, if anybody wants to run a WASM-based confidential runtime, they can do so using our open source um, code. Is that, when you say it's parity-based, do you mean like, is it substrate-related? It's not substrate. Or is it oh, no, no, no. Because we started- Ethereum. Okay. Yeah, parity Ethereum. Because even before Substrate happened, I remember the conversations that we had with the parity team at that point when Substrate was emerging. And I think at that point, parity was more interested in Substrate clearly than they were in <laughs> what had been done before. And so there was that move even within uh, parity. And so for us, yeah. So it is not Substrate to answer your question. Okay. Uh, it, it's interesting because you've sort of architected it the same way, right? Where you have, where you're kind of saying we're splitting these concerns apart. The layer one, the, the platform in which this runtime runs, doesn't matter all that much. Correct. And what's what's important is this runtime. Exactly. And also the, the, the contract between the runtime and the consensus layer is something that the consensus layer dictates, meaning that there is a well-defined API. And the consensus layer is responsible for committee selection, not just the validator committee selection, but also the compute committee selection. And this is a randomized process that's used to select these, right? And then also token transfers, the native token transfers that need to happen for transaction fees and so on. All of that is handled by the consensus layer. And more importantly, what we are enabling in runtimes is verifiable computing. And what that means is there should be a way by which the consensus layer can verify that the compute being done by a particular runtime meets you know, the consensus standard. So it meets, for example, some definition of uh, lack of discrepancies before it actually gets committed to the blockchain. And that gives us tremendous flexibility, really. And in fact, that's the way in which we hope to attack the problem of scale, because, you know, of course, there is sharding and no sharding and so on and so forth. But then more importantly, I think we want to be completely agnostic as to the way in which as I was saying earlier, there is a contract between runtimes and the consensus layer, and there should be a contract which is completely decentralized between the runtimes and the people that want to use those runtimes. And we don't want to be prescriptive when it comes to the way in which runtimes satisfy those constituents. And those could be enterprises, they could be developers. I mean, if they are blockchain developers, then they are used to a certain set of tooling, then there's nothing that stops anyone from running a runtime that provides those services, those sets of tools. 
Mm. Uh, they could have a solidity runtime, for instance, it doesn't matter at all. And then uh, when it comes to enterprises, because from the beginning, it's been important for us to satisfy these two groups. And when it comes to enterprise uh, workloads, many a times you need permissioned execution environments. And then they may want to participate in uh, the consensus layer. They might want to participate in a public blockchain to some extent. There may be some data that makes it into the blockchain, but then the rest of it is something that might be maintained locally within those runtimes. So we want to be completely flexible for enterprises to do both. They, they can choose to participate in a public ledger to the extent they want, whereas a large part of the workload could run within their environments. Mm-hmm. And then the only thing that we would do is before anything gets committed to the blockchain, then of course the whole mechanism of verifiable computing comes into the picture. We make sure that you know we do this process known as discrepancy detection that I can get into a little bit, but then um, which 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 enables us to run much smaller compute committees. Like when you say verifiable computing, can you maybe define what that means? Because I feel like we have I mean we have versions of verifiable something mentioned on this show, but it might be referencing something else. So I'm just curious what that means exactly. Absolutely. It also depends upon, in fact, one of the things that I should say is that when when you're talking about verifiable computing, what is it that you're verifying, right? I mean, it could be that you're verifying integrity. It could be that you're verifying integrity and confidentiality. So for instance, if it happens to be just an integrity verification, then you would need to make sure that, you know, there are some, there is some threshold or some bar is met for there to be integrity in the computation that is being done by the execution environment. For instance, if it is 3F plus 1 consensus, then we want to make sure that F plus 1 compute nodes agree on the result of a computation before they can be committed to the ledger, right? So which means that you are actually doing discrepancy detection so that you can run with much smaller committees, right? You can run with F plus 1 committee sizes and then for some definition of F, and then you can figure out if all of them agree, then you can simply commit. But if there is a discrepancy, then you can involve the full-blown consensus mechanism. So the, the, the verification, the verifiable computing of the, is, is the step that is done before commit, where you're verifying the results of the computation along two different axes, integrity or integrity and confidentiality. Is this something that exists in a lot of different systems, or is this quite unique to Oasis? For As far as I know, it is unique to Oasis. Okay. We have not seen this happen anywhere else. Even, even in, in any normal blockchain, I mean, you you have verifiable computing in the sense that, like, even in proof of work, the miner verifies the transaction and you know commits the work to what like. And I think the the more apt comparison is in proof of stake, where it is as you stated that you have a set of the validators saying yes, this is correct. We're going to commit this to chain. Yeah. Um, but then you have, I mean, uh, CK Snark is also verifiable computing, right? Where you you compute it and then you submit a proof and you verify that computation by running the verifier on the proof. So that's verifiable computing. But so I actually want to dig in a little bit to the protocol of these committees that you're talking about because this sounds similar to what a couple other projects. I mean, Definity is kind of going down this path too, and like a couple others, right? Uh, but I want to pull it back into what we talked about with scaling, because you mentioned like you're also trying to approach the scaling problem, right? Mm-hmm. But is it then from the angle of saying the miners, validators, whatever, don't have to recompute everything that they can just verify? Correct. Or, or that you have this other committee structure? It would be the former, where they just have to, they can commit because of the fact that the runtimes are providing the capability for verifiable computing. Yeah. 
So you're essentially removing this requirement that every full node has to recompute everything recompute, all the time. Yeah. So here is one of the things that I would say that there is, if the, the 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 discrepancy detection that I was mentioning earlier is almost like detecting errors and then full blown consensus is a correction step. So it's for the fast part, the optimistic case, the discrepancy detection enables us to run with much smaller compute committees. And so that's the place where you're actually detecting problems. If there are no problems, you don't have a problem in committing it. But if there are problems, then you want to go through full-blown consensus. So you can think of this as a two-step process. The first is the optimistic case where you're detecting, and the next is correcting, right? If there is a problem with uh, during the detection phase and you're actually correcting using full-blown consensus. Does this land somewhere on the, and I don't know if this is out of, maybe this is out of context, but on the like synchronous, asynchronous consensus scale? Is that what you're describing or is it something completely different? Like I'm trying, I'm sort of thinking back to that episode we did with Itai where we were looking at like BFT and and where that fell. And I'm just wondering if that's the part that you're talking about or is this is this action you're talking about happening before? It's happening before consensus, okay. right? So if you think about it, the consensus layer has at the interface between the consensus layer and the paradigms, we call them par- paradigms, the parallel runtimes. Right, these multiple execution environments. So the interface between the consensus layer and the paradigm is this verification step that happens. The discrepancy detection happens over there. And then you have these signed commits that come from each one of the compute nodes, and that is what is actually being checked. If you notice that all of these um, are the same, if the, the hash has been computed by each of the compute nodes that you have picked randomly to begin with, Right, are are the same signed by those nodes, then you are prepared to accept them. If not, you want to go through full-blown consensus. I mean, we are not really interfering with the consensus step, but the only thing is we engage with it only when we find that there are discrepancies. When you, you talked about machine learning and more complicated compute steps. <laughs> right. Like, are you able to tolerate non-determinism in this scheme? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's a very interesting question, actually. Because if you think about it, any kind of a replicated compute mechanism cannot be non-deterministic. Because if it is, then it's going to be a problem for you to you know, find no discrepancies. So which is why typically when you run something, as we say, on-chain, which means that you have these smart contracts that are running with a replicated compute, multiple compute nodes processing exactly the same transaction, then we would need to control TCB to the extent where there are no network accesses, there are no, uh, you know, there's no, of course no access to a local file system. And you also want to make sure that, you know, any randomness is pre-generated. It's something that is fed in rather than being generated within yeah. these programs so that the results are. So there is no non-determinism. But then to be able to enable workloads such as machine learning training or any of these demanding applications, uh, the way we think of this is enabling off-chain compute. Right. So, you know, you can have a cluster of nodes. For instance, with GCP, we have the flexibility of using confidential VMs. Right. I mean, so for confidentiality, I mean, this is one of those things that I should have mentioned. For confidentiality, there are multiple technologies. I mean, let's call it secure computing. Right. For secure computing, you can use FHE, you can use HE, you can use trusted execution environment based confidentiality. And when it comes to trusted execution environments, you have Intel SGX, you also have AMD SCV as the underlying technologies. And with AMD SCV on GCP, we have a VM level encryption capability. So that then makes it possible for us to pretty much run Docker instances if you wanted to. So you can have fully self-contained binaries, which is usually hard to achieve with machine learning because it's hard to make tons of flows sit inside of a single binary. So what you could do in these cases is that you can actually build a Docker image that has all of its dependencies baked in, and you can create an instance, and that then runs inside of a confidential VM, which gives you the properties that DEs do, 
right? In the sense that you have attestation and then you have encryption, which is used for the entire memory. All of the pages that have been allocated for a given process is going to be our program that's running inside of it. The enclaved program is going to be encrypted. And so with given those two, you have confidentiality that you can provide for workloads that are not restricted anymore. So you can be completely language agnostic. It's no longer the case that you're restricting developers to write using Rust or using Solidity, but instead now they can bring to bear you know, anything. They can write using Python if they wanted to, right? And so what we do is the, the Oasis runtime, okay? So provides these capabilities where you can actually engage with off-chain compute nodes to be able to do these demanding applications or run these demanding applications. And then the protocol is the one that's enabled, that enables persisting what you want to persist on the blockchain. And the entire key mediation, ensuring that through attestation, you are able to verify that what's running is exactly what is expected. All of that happens as a consequence of the protocol. So the protocol is being used to verify, do attestation proofs, and then you know, hand over keys to enclaved programs so that they can then access the data that they would need to be able to do whatever they need to. Yeah. Right? And so this makes it even more flexible if you think about it. So as I was mentioning, given the fact that the overarching concern is to enable developers uh, whether they be blockchain developers or enterprise developers. I don't want to keep repeating myself, but then it, it makes it easier for us to enable them. You know, if they, For instance, if there is an existing stack, if there's an existing application stack that's been written, which is cloud native running in some cloud, it makes it easier now for us to tackle confidentiality for that entire stack. I'm not saying that we are there yet, but then it makes it possible for us to do so. Yeah, I, I didn't know that GCP had that, actually. That, that's cool. I have to dig into that further. Yeah. It's like, I mean, a, a big problem with TEs is actually just deploying them. Getting a TE to run is <laughs> <Yes>. really hard. <laughs> Even like all all pain. Intel <laughs> CPUs ship with SGX, but most of them are are like BIOS blocks. You can't actually enable them on the specific CPUs that you can enable them. You also need like a motherboard that supports it and the right BIOS. <laughs> you know, for that, and then like it's a whole stack all the way up yeah. through the compiler to to actually make anything work on it. Exactly, and Frederick, think about it. It's so painful from a tooling perspective. Intel SGX SDK. I mean, the fact that they came up with this kudos to them, right? I mean, it is fantastic. It's an incredible technology, piece of technology. But then, the tooling is difficult. I mean, if it hadn't been for Fortanix providing Fortanix EDP, it would make it so much harder for you to build enclave programs. Yeah. I mean, with, with EDP, it makes it possible for you to you take Rust and then build programs with Rust and then enclave them, right? Or create secure enclaves from them. So I think um, you're absolutely right. And it's been very hard for us to use TEEs from, from Intel exactly for these reasons. But then now with uh, GCP, this announcement from GCP, by the way, is very fresh. Okay. It's a couple of months old. Yeah, yeah, it's not something that's been around for a while. And also, one thing that you should uh, remember is that the TE technology that backends uh, the support on GCP is based on AMD SCV, which does not provide attestation capabilities yet. So it gives you encrypted memory, but it doesn't give you attestation. And that is something that is expected to land by the end of the year when AMD supports AMD SNP, yeah. which is secure nested pages. And so once that happens, I think we'll have the full capabilities, the full gamut of what we can do with Intel SGX is something that now becomes possible uh, using confidential VMs yeah. uh, from Google. I, I want to go back a little bit to the protocol because I still don't really understand the role of the committees. I mean, as you just described it, it's sort of, you can imagine a smart contract, that smart contract kicks off an off-chain worker job. Yeah. And then that worker comes back with, okay, here's you know my, my execution, here's the 
you know, in an ideal case, the attestation and, and like, here's something for you to verify. Uh, and then the miners in the system, whatever they are, can look at that. They can verify the computation. They can say, this is legit. Let's include it. Right. And so wh- where does this um, smaller group of validators or runners come in? Oh, I see. Okay. So that would be oh, not for the off-chain case, right? Because I was mentioning earlier that runtimes can provide smart contract support. So in which case you have the full gamut of replicated compute where your smart contracts are deployed exactly the same way as you would deploy them using, say, for example, an Ethereum-compatible platform. So nothing changes in the sense that this is just a capability that we provide as a part of the Oasis runtime. But then what I should also mention is that this is different from the reference confidential runtime, which is based on parity that we make available for anyone to run. Right? So this is just expanding the footprint, so to speak. I mean, for blockchain developers that are used yeah. to their existing tooling, they can continue to use, for example, what we have, which is like an Ethereum-compatible WASM runtime. That's the point at which all of the various things like, you know, manifest. But then what we have done is for, for off-chain, this is, it's it's again, as far as the platform is concerned, it's not prescriptive, but this is just one of the things that we build. So we have two different runtimes. I mean, we have this runtime that is Ethereum-compatible WASM that we just talked about and the other happens to be the one that i was talking about which is the one that provides this off-chain capability so uh, and nothing stops people from using any kind of technology and if you think about it you could even have an fhe based runtime that is dedicated for machine learning training you know because that seems to be the one that's getting a lot of traction in the fhe community at least so that could be the one that gives you those or it could be a settlement using zkp or yeah so that's the flexibility which i think is uh <laughs> interesting I, I yeah I hope I answered answered that question of yours. Um, I wanna I mean so you just mentioned you know you're using T's or T's or like at the core of what you're, the kind of architecture that you've created. But like we did do an episode on T's about a year and a half ago, uh-huh. I believe, and we also have heard a lot of criticism from the community that Side that channels. we have <laughs> around T's. Of course, and so. <laughs> How do you address that? Like, what are were you not concerned about those same issues? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question. In fact, we get asked that question quite often, right? As you can imagine, there are multiple answers to this. I mean, one is if you look at just EE technologies. I mean, we are not wedded to Intel SGX. I mean, as I was mentioning earlier, we are also looking at AMD SCV and Professor Song with uh, collaborators at MIT is working on Project Keystone, which is like an open source uh, trusted execution environment project. So there are multiple TE technologies that are emerging, and we are not wedded to any given secure computing technique. So for instance, if FHE becomes more usable, let me put it that way, I mean, it's not that it doesn't give you the guarantees that you seek, but then it gives you better guarantees probably, but then there are still issues with enabling it at uh, the scales that you would like. And so we are constantly watching out for improvements that are happening in that space. And if it catches up, I mean, we'd be completely open to using that as well. But for us, given that the overarching objective is to enable these demanding applications to run, we need near-native performance, given which TEAs are the ones that give us the best of both worlds. I mean, you can still tweak your security parameters to the extent possible by which you make it that much harder for attackers to compromise these systems. But then that's always a battle. If you think about it, vulnerabilities are always going to be there. It's not something that you can address. There will be vulnerabilities in any system that you build. And the battle is always trying to make sure that you make breaking a system that much harder in terms of compute, in terms of everything else that people need to bring up um, in order to be able to break it. And when it comes to side channels, I mean, there are side channels that can happen at the level of the TEE. There are also side channels that can happen at the application layer. 
And for the application layer, there are better solutions. I mean, you have oblivious RAM, you have various ways by which you can, the applications can at least address the problem of side channels. But you're absolutely right that when it comes to the native TE technology, there have been attacks that have been discovered. It might take a while to discover these things, but once they've been discovered, it's much easier to replicate, which is almost always the case in security. So that's what I would say. And But the guarantees that are provided are substantial. And uh, it's an evolutionary process. I mean, we are where we are. We are providing the capabilities and confidentiality. And, and the best part of it is this. You know, you, you know, by making it so decentralized that anyone that wants to submit a transaction can choose if they want to submit a transaction to a runtime that's TEE-based or FHE-based. That itself is the power that I think we bring to the table, right? Because now you're really empowering an individual. I mean, it depends on their perception, their trust, their you know, threat model that they have in mind that needs to be addressed. And if your security model, the one that is provided by your runtime, addresses their threats, then I think you're good, right? If it doesn't, they're not going to be using that runtime. They'll use something else. Hmm. And for us, then it behooves us to make sure that we provide a platform that enables anyone to run a capable runtime that would be appealing to developers uh, that can come from anywhere. So you've already mentioned, I mean, TEs, we know, we understand in the realm of a privacy technology, but like, how else does Oasis approach privacy. You're the privacy architect, so I'm very curious to hear what other kinds of privacy exist. No. I yeah. love that you laugh at your title. <laughs> it must be a new one. <laughs> Relatively. <laughs> so that is very interesting because for me, and for us, in fact, at Oasis, the, the way we think about security is that there are three different axes, right? You have integrity, you have confidentiality, and you have privacy. And then confidentiality and privacy are different things. TEE-based technologies give you confidentiality. FHE gives you confidentiality. But privacy, in our mind at least, is a little different. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. I think it's, it's best to explain that with an example. Now, let us say that you have an organization that has a database of employees and a column is their salaries. And you want to provide like an average query that can be used to compute the average salary of the employees in the organization. Now, if I run this query once before a new hire joins the company and once after, and if I know the number of people in the company, I can then determine exactly how much money or what the salary is of the new hire. And so this, you might run the computation with full confidentiality. You might use TEs, you might use FHE, you can use whatever you want. It doesn't matter at all. But the point is, the result of the computation in this case is actually leaking sensitive information. Mm. So that is where I think the way we look at privacy, that is the place where we look at privacy. So it's an application level construct, if you think about it. So you want to make sure that you have, of course, confidentiality at rest, you have confidentiality in transit, you have confidentiality during compute. But then you also want to make sure that the result of the computation is not just confidential, but also privacy preserving in the definition that I just gave you or the example that I just gave you. So... For that, there are multiple techniques. For instance, there is differential privacy, which is the thing that we uh, have some expertise in. Differential so what, privacy. What? Yeah, yeah differential what, privacy. What is, what is that? What does that mean? So you can think of it this way. Differential privacy is a technique that gives you the ability to add, jigger your result a little bit. I mean, you add noise to the result okay. in a way such that you, you know, it will be privacy preserving. So in effect, the presence or absence of a given record, a single record, I mean, these are actually called, you know, called called databases that are uh, very close to each other. So, it, but that differs just by one record. So, in the presence or absence of a record, the result should still be somewhat similar. 
Okay, so that's what you would want. I see. And and if you're looking at differential privacy, it comes in two different. There are two different places where differential privacy is necessary. One is for statistical queries, like the average query that I was mentioning earlier. So, which means if you have a SQL database and you want to apply statistical queries on that database, you want to make sure that the result is differentially private. Okay, and. Uh, the way that's typically done is the way we do it, at least, is by query rewriting. So, which means you have a query, a SQL query, that's rewritten so that you make it intrinsically private. So, the noise mechanism is actually added to the query. So, which means now once the query is rewritten, it can just run against your database. It doesn't matter what the database is. As long as the database supports SQL and it supports a bunch of mathematical functions, you can run this query just like the way you would run your uh, you know, the non-private query, and you will get a result that is differentially private. Mm. What's typically done, in fact, is that you use like a Laplace distribution, the parameters of the distribution are based on the sensitivity of the query, and then uh, and on a privacy budget, and then that determines, you know, what the spread is going to be of the distribution. So when you sample from there, you get either more noisy results or you get less noisy results based on one tweakable parameter and another that is intrinsically part of the query. So that is for uh, statistical queries. But then Dawn, in fact, through her research and many others, in fact, have shown that uh, machine learning models have this habit in certain cases of memorizing the inputs that went into training them. Okay, so which means that you can actually use the model itself to glean sensitive information that was Ooh. used in its training. Yeah. I see, like it's if you, because it will, it will sort of repeat patterns and it will like, yeah, exactly. throw back something that exactly. shows what it's learned. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, so in machine translation, for example, language models, if you want to be able to translate from one language to the other based on the corpus, you might even have situations where sensitive information has been ingested during training and that's a part of the model. Mm. So the models can leak sensitive information. So for there, again, differential privacy is used so that you do something very similar in the sense that you jigger the parameters of the model so that you cannot reconstruct inputs that went into training the model. Mm. So, so which means now differential privacy is a privacy modality that applies not just to machine learning training, but also applies to, you know, statistical queries. And the important thing for, for machine learning training is that, I mean, you might do federated learning, I mean, which can be thought of as a privacy modality. By that, what I mean is part of the computer at least goes to the data, right? Because the data is not coming to a central server where it's being aggregated and then you are applying your training algorithm. But instead, you are actually computing gradients locally where the data is located. And that's what is actually used is averaged and then used to update the model remotely. But the fact that the model, wherever it's updated, can still leak sensitive information is the problem. So no matter what you use to train the model, you need differential privacy to make sure that the result does not leak any sensitive information. Interesting. So sorry, I, I interrupted you with the differential privacy question because um, I actually had that on, on my list of questions. Mm -hmm. But are there other privacy concepts that matter in the OASIS system that you're thinking about? Uh, thinking about, but not yet. Uh, ZKP for sure. I mean, there is a lot of work, and I mean, this is the right place for us. <laughs> That's right. But I'm no expert in ZKP for sure. I mean, I'm not not an expert in uh, homomorphic encryption either. But then, from what I understand, yes, I mean, it has a place. For what is really fascinating for me, I think, where you know zero knowledge techniques are applicable, would be in you know decentralized ID, for example, in credential keeping. For instance, if I have a few trust anchors, my the, the government might give me a passport, for instance, and I might summarize that in some way. And that is information that I own as an individual. That's mine. And the drivers, uh, what's that? Uh, the Department of Motor Vehicles, my local Department of Motor Vehicles might give me a driver's license that I also want to 
hold as a credential. And now when you want to check certain things on this credential, then I can see that, you know, techniques such as uh, ZK become exceedingly, yeah, of knowledge, become exceedingly valuable. So we are not oblivious to that, but then we want to bring it in at some point for sure, but then not at this time, because right now we've been busy with other things. Yeah. I can see applicability for that in many places. Yeah. The concept of differential privacy is is fascinating. I have to read up more on that. I can totally see how it works for statistical examples because like mm-hmm. it's an average, you don't really care what the exact number is. If it's fudged a little bit, yeah, whatever. But in a machine learning model, it feels like you'd be destroying the model by introducing noise. Like the whole point of how you're building up the model and why you're doing it is to get to these exact numbers, <laughs> like this exact matrix. And then yeah, if you're exactly. like, oh, let's just fuck it up a little bit, then yeah, how does that work? But <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, so I would recommend, in fact, there is a technique known as approximate minima perturbation. You should take a look at some of these. I can also send you separately via email. Yeah. I can send you some links. Actually, we should share it in our show notes if you do yeah, want. If, sure. you, if you send us anything, oh, we'll probably share it with our listeners too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Talking a little bit more about Oasis and what you've built, you mentioned that there's a mainnet coming up. I'm curious also just to hear your thoughts on I mean, you've already talked about this, like it shouldn't really matter where you're coming from, what kind of developer you are. Seems like you're trying to appeal to like an enterprise use case as well. How do you see this breakdown between public blockchains, private blockchains, permissioned ones or unpermissioned ones and all this? I mean, this I can cite from examples that we have working with some of the enterprise partners. Some of them clearly want to have a participation in the public blockchain, but I wouldn't say that that is universally true. Uh, for many others, because cloud services today provide ledger technologies, like for instance, in AWS, you find that there is QLDB, which gives you uh, similar guarantees. But of course, I wouldn't say that it's as robust as a completely decentralized ledger. It clearly is not because AWS still owns your master keys. <laughs> but then be that as it may, what we see is that it's it's a spectrum. I mean, there are some enterprises that are completely fine with, it depends on the use cases as well. For example, we are working with an automotive company that has this grand plan eventually of doing consent-driven data capture from the dashboard of vehicles. So which means you pretty much can, in the dash, participate in a campaign that this company has where they want to collect a specific piece of information, like how you're using a particular vehicle feature. And then once you accept it, then they'll collect only that information. And now they need transparency for at least the way that information, the journey of the information that is being collected, in which case they might want to you know, at least have some part of the transaction captured on a public ledger so that it becomes auditable and transparent. Mm. And for other cases, like for instance, in healthcare, we find that healthcare is one of those very cagey industries where you find a lot of information. There's a tremendous amount of data siloing that happens in healthcare. They do, uh, you know, hold their data uh, very closely. And participating in a public ledger is something that is not encouraged in many groups within healthcare. But then what we see is that there is an emerging trend. I mean, with COVID, things did change. And we think that this might be a great opportunity for there to be a disruptive change in healthcare. Because, I mean, I can give you various examples. Care continuum. I mean, you have IoT devices at home and you want to make sure that you capture data from these devices. And then you want to provide this information to your doctors or even to programs that can, you know, do some sort of pre-diagnosis and might even be able to prevent seeing a doctor or they might obviate the need to see a doctor because there is a way of self-medicating and so on and so forth. So there are a lot of opportunities that have opened up as a consequence in healthcare. But uh, maybe I'm deviating a little bit from your question. But what I would say is that it depends on the use case. I mean, if there is 
consumer data that is involved, if it is a D2C use case where the business is actually providing value for a consumer, then I think participating in a public ledger becomes even more important. So it's not necessarily the case that everything participates in a public ledger, but then they can pick and choose. There are certain things that will and others may not. It doesn't matter. So what is the what is Oasis's main net and what does it actually, you know, set out to do? I'm particularly curious, like you talked about these parallel runtimes or paratimes, which parachain para times will be there <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. at launch. <laughs> sure. Yeah, at launch we expect to have a couple at least. And um one is going to be a WASM runtime, which is Ethereum compatible, that's being run by second states which we expect will land by mainnet. And then we also have an Oasis runtime. And our runtime is purpose-built for these ecosystems of data providers and data consumers because Oasis also wants to use our platform for a responsible data economy or a responsible data use. You know, where we, the way we envisage this is to play out is where individuals own their data, they can tokenize it, and then this tokenized data can participate. So data is a non-fungible asset like real estate or cars, if you think about it. that It hasn't been thought of that way so far, but then we would really like to make that change. We would like to enable that post-mainnet, of course, where people can tokenize their data and participate in data markets. But then, to come back to your question, the the Oasis runtime that will be there at mainnet launch is the one that enables these ecosystems of data providers and data consumers. Data providers have, that persona has certain requirements. They want to upload data sets. They want to set policies that can be programmatically verified. Uh, you know, the policies could be things like, you know, there, there is only this corporation that can analyze my data. And I expect the results to be in this format. For example, interpretations of, uh, you know, your polygenic scores of your genome, right? So that's in fact the use case that we are working on right now. So things of that nature. Uh, so that will be the runtime. So the runtime that Oasis will run, the Oasis runtime is the one that enables these ecosystems to make it easier for enterprises and developers to be able to engage with the platform. And what uh, validators exist on this network, right? Well, how, is it proof of stake and like anyone can participate as a validator or do you need special hardware to do anything? No special hardware. Yeah, anyone can participate. It's proof of stake. Yes, absolutely. In fact, I think that was one of the things that uh, would also have raised concern, right? Because if they all needed to have SGX-enabled boxes and they needed to have some kind of trusted execution environments, no, that's not really the case. Um, right now, pretty much the validators that are participating in every other platform are also participating on Oasis. We have over 400 validators node operators at this point. I mean, I don't know the exact numbers. I mean, it's one of those things that I keep, I have to take a look at. If you want me to, then I can pull up a slide and I can give you those numbers. But uh, I don't know them off the top of my head. So just going back to the paradigms and the side chains, and I know you may have actually mentioned this earlier on in the episode, but when you talk about it, I, I, for some reason, I still don't understand exactly how they're stuck together. How do they link into each other? So you talk about this Oasis ah. mainnet runtime. Yeah. But are they connected or are they running separately and separately. not connected? Separately. Oh, they are. Okay. The so they're different instances and they don't, there's no interoperability. The paratimes are independent entities at this point. At mainnet, they're going to be separate. Communication between paratimes is not expected, but that can change. I mean, it's, it's for instance, there could be people that run multiple paradigms that have a me- mechanism by which they can communicate with each other. We have also been looking at how we can enable, for instance, uh, I mean, DeFi is big, and we have a lot of DeFi partners, and we are trying to bring them on board with their existing code bases on runtimes that would be able to support their code, in which case it would be nice for us to have a way by which we can communicate with those uh, instances 
from say the Oasis runtime. So there are a lot of things that can be enabled by that, especially when I, when it comes to data markets and tokenization and so on and so forth, because I do expect that these things will start to interplay. Um, but at mainnet, it's not going to be there, but it's something that we have thought of. Mm. I just wonder, like, would one of these paradigms be useful as a sidechain to another system then? It could be. Like if there was a way to connect those yeah. back? That could be, yeah, no, for sure. Okay. I would expect that to be the case. But I guess you could do, like, that could be any, it's just spinning up a brand new yeah. blockchain. Like, so it's it doesn't have any, like, how would the security of those actually function then? Oh, it wouldn't be a separate because blockchain. there's no validators. Oh, it it won't be a separate blockchain. I mean, it would still have to be, oh, it, it wouldn't be a separate blockchain. So so the thing is, paradigms can have their own state management, meaning that they can have their own internal state that they manage. They have their own storage nodes. They have their own key management if they happen to be confidential. And they can also have uh, compute all of the various things. But then when it comes to committing anything to the ledger, there is the single consensus layer that has, it has to go through that. There are no separate multiple consensus layers that are participating in side chains. No, it's oh, not that at all. The architecture is very different in that sense. So it would still go through this sort of valid, the same validator set. Mm. Exactly, exactly. I think uh, exactly. maybe the simplified uh, analogy is thinking of it like each runtime being a smart contract, but that that smart contract can have <laughs> its own execution logic. It has its own state. It's, you're not sharing a global state between all contracts. Ah. Exactly, yeah. Cool, so there was some announcement that came out quite recently uh -huh. about the CryptoSafe platform. Yes. Can you tell us something about this and, and how this relates to everything we've just talked about? Oh, absolutely. CryptoSafe was uh, something that came out of a discussion that we had with Binance uh, maybe a couple of months ago. So it's interesting. They have a very unique problem. I mean, you have exchanges that are processing so many transactions, crypto transactions, wallet addresses being involved, sources, destinations, and so on and so forth. And there is a lot of research that's going on in even identifying malicious wallet addresses, for instance, or identifying or creating fingerprints of endpoints that might be participating in fraudulent transactions. Now, there is a lot of fraud. In fact, you notice that even for ransomware attacks these days, I mean, crypto seems to be the way by which they expect to be paid. Now, given all of this, I think the need of the hour is for exchanges to pull in their threat intelligence because each of these exchanges, I'm not saying that this is true for all exchanges, but then there are many that have their own threat intelligence teams. And these threat intelligence teams are continuously figuring out what would be, say, malicious wallet addresses or what would be interesting fingerprints or signatures that identify fraudulent behavior. And if there is a way by which they can share it in a way such that they're not required to trust each other, they're not required to even trust Oasis, then I think it becomes an incentive-compatible mechanism mm. for all of the participants. And, and let me tell you what I mean by that. Okay, so you can also make it, it could be a monetary compensation. For instance, an exchange could build a reputation. There are a lot of things that the platform can enable, right? Because an exchange can build a reputation. If it has a very strong threat intelligence team, then clearly their threat intelligence is going to be more valuable for uh, the others to react to to prevent you know, malicious transactions. And so there could be a compensation structure that also is worked out by which exchanges get compensated based on the value that they bring to the platform. But then I would suffice it to say that to begin with, what we want to do is to enable exchanges to upload their threat intelligence. And this is going to be maintained confidentially on Oasis, where Oasis does not have the ability to interpret the threat intelligence. Mm. So we have come up with a mechanism. Of course, there are multi-party computation mechanisms. Or you can FHG use stuff, private, yeah. yeah, yeah, right. I mean, you can use private set intersection, cardinality. There are many, many ways by which you can achieve something similar. But then 
That also requires more compute capability from each of these exchanges. They need to have dedicated resources to be able to participate in some kind of an MPC mechanism to achieve this. And so what we came up with was a system that would enable them to share this data where they're not required to trust each other, they're not required to trust Oasis, and we can provide this capability by which they can check you know, any fixed bit width field. <laughs> against this threat intelligence, okay? <laughs> okay? So, so CryptoSafe enables exchanges to come together to share their, their threat intelligence where they're not required to trust each other, nor are they required to trust Oasis. And so Oasis manages the data that we get from them to run queries that they can then use to prevent fraudulent transactions. Okay. So that in a nutshell is what CryptoSafe is. And But it, how does, what does that really have to do with I guess the privacy part here is that like the data itself is kept private and still could be queried. Oh, it's amazing. It's defense in depth, if you think about it, right? Because you provide, the platform provides confidentiality. The platform, as I was mentioning earlier, we are enabling these ecosystems where data providers can be completely assured of the fact that their data is something that is encrypted and they are the ones that own it. Right? So that is the piece of functionality that that is one piece of the puzzle, but not just that. I mean, it's defense in depth because you have you know, confidential runtimes, you have data being encrypted per exchange that is then being maintained with all the transactions persisted confidentially on the ledger. Mm. And only the exchanges can actually look at the transactions that they have submitted or the delegated authorities. They might delegate access to other identities that can then check the transactions for a given exchange, right? And if you think about it, what is really powerful is that threat intelligence by itself is something that is not as sensitive. I mean, you can argue, right? It, you don't obviously want it to fall into the hands of people that are malicious participants because mm -hmm. then they know exactly the kind of intelligence that you're picking up about them. But then more importantly, there is a lot of business intelligence in the queries that are being run by the exchanges, right? Because if an exchange runs a query, then that is information about an existing customer mm. that more often than not is not malicious. And so you need to make sure that there is complete end-to-end -end confidentiality. And the platform is capable of giving you complete end-to-end -end confidentiality for your transactions because you are not just encrypting data at rest, but you're also encrypting payload. You are you have key management that is responsible for you, you know, generating keys that are used to encrypt payload, program state, data that the program acts upon. And all of these are then processed inside of these secure enclaves to give you the level of guarantees that are that have so far been impossible to achieve, I think. This problem is an interesting one. It's actually like I think I've actually seen this in a textbook where uh, it's this game theoretic problem where you have a bunch of competitors who they'd all be better off if they shared the data, right? Like if there's a comprehensive, yeah. you know, threat intelligence set, they would all benefit. But if only one participates, then he's helping his competitors. And like, he shouldn't participate if he's the only one. So like you have this, if it's a repeated game, they'll find the solution that they should all share and be all better off. Um, right. yeah, yeah, it's it's quite fascinating, actually. To close out the interview, I'm curious, like what stage is Oasis at? Like you are in testnet from what I understood at this stage. Uh -huh. So where, yeah, where are you at and how close are you to launching? Oh, um, we are pretty close to launching. So we have the candidate mainnet, that is actually being tested at this point. So I would say that we are pretty close. Uh, <laughs> but I can't, <laughs> but you can't say, say more. more. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this may, just, just as a side, this may air in like two weeks. Will you already be launched by then? <laughs> I can't say. <laughs> you can't say. I can't okay. say. I can't say. <laughs> um, but then what, what's next in privacy? Like what are the 
what are the future things that Oasis th- is thinking about on that front? Yeah. So we have a, a whole bunch of use cases that we're working on. So enabling all of those. So if you think about it, for me and for you know for the company as a whole, it's operationalization of all of the things that we have built so far. I mean, we just want to make sure that all of these things scale and they become useful, right? And that there are people out there that are building applications that become successful with it. And if you look at the kinds of applications that people are building right now on the platform, they're fascinating. Just enabling them is going to be very satisfying, honestly. Like, uh, for instance, there is a genomics company that's working with us where they're providing these interpretations of polygenic scores that I mentioned earlier. Then there are companies, like, for instance, there is one that wants to enable masking technologies. Like you can create a video. If you're a reporter, for instance, working from a place that is extremely dangerous, then you can create a video and then you can use their AI technology to mask your face out. And that is then going to be released to the public so that people can't really Mm -hmm. point out who it is. And then there is this other company that wants to, I mean, it's like a Black Mirror episode, (laughs) you know, where they want to pretty much make your memory searchable. Whoa. So they want to take, yeah, I mean, which is fascinating, you know, if you think about it, because it's like interactions such as this, where the things that we say uh, can be captured. And from there, you can do, you know, speech to text translation, you can do topic modeling, you can do various transforms on that data. And then you can figure out what would be interesting memory capsules that you want to capture from the conversation, and then make that searchable. That's what they want to do. And care continuum is one of those things that I was mentioning earlier. In fact, the other thing that I must say is that this is a use case that came to us recently in Australia because of COVID, where people that have, you know, mental disabilities or they have, they need to seek mental health care. They needed to be matched with providers that would provide pro bono services. But then how do you enable that, right? Because there is credentialing. You need to be able to verify that. A lot of sensitive information is being shared with the person. How do you enable all of these things? I mean, they are going to be... So maintaining all of this with confidentiality becomes important. User privacy is so important in these matters for healthcare, for sure. So there are so many use cases. So to answer your question, I think it would be more of, you know, enabling the most fascinating use cases that have not been possible before using technology that we have built so far and ensuring that it scales and they are successful. We just want to make sure that they are successful. Cool. All right. It's been a fascinating conversation. And thanks so much for joining, Vishwa. Oh, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you both to you, Frederick and Anna. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And good luck with the upcoming mainnet launch sometime in the future. Sometime soon, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Or present if this airs right when it happens. Um, (laughs) All right. So thanks so much. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.